0: Well, this evening, we are considering the pursuit of holiness in the context of relationships. And my goal is to help you see from this passage tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, how God intends for us to engage in that pursuit. As we begin, we should recognize that sensitivity is needed when we're talking about relationships and holiness, and making distinctions. And we need God's grace to think carefully through this passage. So as we begin, let me once again go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we do ask for your guidance and your grace as we think through your word. We pray that you would help us to believe your word, believe your truth, and i pray that you would speak to us tonight to grow us and to shape us into the image of christ and we pray this in his name amen our scripture reading tonight comes from second corinthians chapter 6 i will begin in verse 14 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I think to understand the impact of this text, we first need to consider the beginning. Because from the beginning, God designed the world to be a place where he would dwell with his people and the people he created would dwell with their God. They would recognize him as holy and out of love in their hearts. They would respond in faith and obedience to him. God purposely designed the Garden of Eden to be a place where he would have fellowship with his people. He would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He would give them clear expectations so that they could pursue holiness. Holiness, you'll remember, can commonly be defined as being distinct, separate, and set apart. Here's one of the instructions that God gave his people. He said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from every tree, every other tree in the garden, except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the garden, God provided, and then he made a distinction. God gave them everything that they could possibly want You can eat from all of these trees anytime, 24-7 Garden Buffet, but do not eat from this one tree. How many times has God provided for us and perhaps at the beginning of that we are thankful? Our hearts are filled with gratitude and then all of a sudden we see something that is a little more appealing and we say, well, why not that one? Well, why not that one tree? By making a distinction, God was trying to protect his people. The creator of all of life was seeking to shield his people from spiritual death. And so God provided a way for his people to have life by obeying his word in the pursuit of holiness. Now, after God had given this command, pure evil in the form of a snake slithered into the midst of the garden, and with one question, this evil led to the fracturing of humanity's relationship with God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, Satan twisted God's commands as he always does, but at that moment, Adam and Eve had a choice, as we always do when faced with difficult decisions. They could have obeyed their creator out of love in their hearts. They could have stepped on the serpent's neck or better yet, crushed his head. But instead, they closed their hearts to God and opened their hearts to the evil one. Instead of allowing the greatness of God to capture their attention, they were captured, their attention was captured. They were in awe of something that was beyond their reach, a secret knowledge a godlike status. This is very common in our world. There are so many people who are seeking for some spiritual knowledge outside of the Bible. But how about us? Do you ever long for, crave for a godlike control over your circumstances? When you think of the expectations and the instructions that are communicated in God's Word, Are you more likely to think of them as protections or as restrictions? Friends, I hope that you are convinced tonight that God has provided for you, that God loves you, that he wants to protect you through his word. Now, Adam and Eve, of course, were deceived, and this deception led to a rejection of God's word, a deliberate and willful rebellion against God. And this rebellion led to this fracturing of the relationship between humanity and God. And still God desired a relationship with his people. He still desired that they would recognize him as holy. And out of love in their hearts, they would obey him. Now, judging by the confused looks on some of your faces, you may be asking, is is he preaching from Genesis? Or is he preaching from 2 Corinthians? The reason why I said all of that is because what happened in the garden is repeated in the church at Corinth. Here in this chapter, the same thing is happening. Because God provided for his people. God provided a messenger for his people in the Apostle Paul. And yet, they were tempted to reject the messenger, as we've been learning God gave them a message, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of reconciliation, and they were tempted to turn away from that. And here in this verse, verse chapter 14, God makes a distinction. Once again, God is trying to protect his people. He is seeking to shield his beloved Corinthians from spiritual death. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. As we begin considering what this text means, let us consider what it does not mean. This text in no way is implying that we should not be friends with non-Christians. This text is in no way denigrating non-Christians. We know that Paul spent most of his mature life, most of his adult life, ministering to non-Christian people. And we know that Jesus, our Lord, is a friend of sinners like you and like me. And so this is not speaking negatively about non-Christians, but what it is is making a distinction. And he's saying, do not be unequally yoked. So what does it mean to be yoked? Well, a long, long, well, a long time ago, my great-great-grandfather bought a farm, and farmers during that time period used animals to plow their land. These animals would be closely aligned together and they would be strapped, they'd harness, and then a bar or a yoke would be placed on their necks. This yoke would often be curved so not to hurt or injure the animal's neck. And the purpose of this wooden yoke was and these straps together was to keep these animals moving in the same direction. If the animals were yoked together, then the farmer could more easily walk behind them, plowing deep, straight rows where these seeds would be planted. The straighter the rows, the more rows in a certain plot of land, thus increasing the overall yield. As you might expect, there were problems with this method. At times, you could have a a larger, stronger ox or mule... And if that was yoked to a weaker or a smaller mule or ox, then it would be hard, it would be difficult to keep the rows straight. And so for that reason, the the farmer would look for animals of similar size and strength and even constitution because if that were the case, then they would be equally yoked. Equally yoked. Properly connected animals would help the farmer to produce a great harvest that would feed many in his community. In a similar way, when we are equally yoked, spiritually speaking, we have a greater opportunity to produce a harvest of righteousness as we serve the Lord together with others. Now, in this text, Paul is using five words or phrases to flesh out this concept. If you look there in verses 14 through 16, he uses these words partnership, fellowship, being of one accord, having a portion with, sharing, or having agreement with. This is what I think Paul means. To be yoked is to have a heart level commitment. Now, I'm using the word heart in the biblical sense, which would include the emotions and the intellect and the will. So to say it another way, to be yoked is to be committed in such a way that the commitment you make greatly influences the way you feel and the way you think and the way you act. And so when Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, what he is saying to the church at Corinth is that if you are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then do not commit your life, do not commit your mind or your heart, your emotions or your will to anyone who is not believing the gospel. Be distinct. Now you might hear that and you say, well, That's very difficult to be distinct, and you would be right. That is common to the Christian experience all around the world. People serving the Lord, giving their lives to the Lord, being distinct, and it's difficult. But for our children and our grandchildren, it will become increasingly difficult. So we need to be not only embracing this teaching, but also teaching our children and our grandchildren this as well. Now, the word unbelievers here in verse 14 simply means someone without belief, some, an unbelieving one. These were not true Christians. Now, some think that this word is referring to the super apostles as mentioned later in chapter 11. And that's, that's very possible. Paul certainly wants the church to refrain from making a heart level commitment which would lead them to think and to speak and to act like the world. So, if these false apostles are leading them in that direction, which again is possible, then this makes sense. It could be referring to that. But at the very least, Paul wants the church to pursue holiness by simply making a distinction do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, you may be becoming convinced of that. You might be convinced of that, but we need to ask the question, why? Why is that the case? So please look with me at verses, uh, at verses 14 through 16. Paul gives two main reasons why we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He does this first by saying that we are opposites. Spiritually speaking, a believer is the opposite of an unbeliever. It's a mismatch. If someone is running toward Jesus and someone is running away from Jesus, they will never be spiritually united. It's not possible. Paul emphasizes this by asking five rhetorical questions. He says, number one, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Partnership requires a united purpose and vision. That's why people partner together. Before God rescued us, when we were unbelievers, we were slaves to sin and lawlessness. But now we have become slaves to righteousness. Our ethics change, our beliefs and behavior change. Paul's expectation for the Corinthians was that they were changing. And there is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. Question number two What fellowship has light with darkness? God rescued the Corinthian church from darkness and brought them into light, as he has many of us. We are no longer blind to God's grace. Light and darkness are opposites. What accord or harmony has Christ with Baliel? This is question number three. This word, Baliel is a reference to Satan with an emphasis on worthlessness. And so what I think Paul is getting at here is he's saying that trying to mix Jesus with anything else is worthless. You can't do it. It's not possible. All around the world, people try to mix Jesus with whatever religion they are practicing. But it doesn't work. As it's been said many times, Jesus plus Anything equals nothing. Some might say heresy. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Question number four. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Before God rescued us, we had no inheritance. But as believers, we now share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Colossians 1.12. Contrast this to the inheritance of unbelievers complete and eternal separation from God. There is no portion of a believer with an unbeliever. Question number five. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Before God rescued us, we all readily embraced idolatry. I know that's offensive, but it's true. Because everyone worships someone or something. John Calvin suggested that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory and that's true i think but in our conversion believers are given a new heart a new identity with a new purpose to bring glory and honor to god as we seek to turn from idolatry in all of these questions it's an emphatic negative this is not possible There are things that we share in common with non-Christian people. There are many wonderful non-Christian people in the world. But when it comes to matters of eternity, we are opposites. That's what Paul is trying to emphasize here. Reason number two that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers is because believers are the temple of the living God, as opposed to false gods made by human hands. But how are we the temple? Mentioned here in this text, we have three reasons. First, we are the temple of God because God dwells with us. Quoting from Exodus 29, Paul writes, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Jesus is God, and he came to dwell among his people, thus fulfilling this promise. But instead of making a distinction, the people that he came to made no distinction between everyone else and Jesus, the God-man. Now his followers made a distinction, and he made a distinction. He recognized, recognized himself as the Son of God, and so they crucified him because they were unwilling to make that same distinction. But when Jesus died, so did the concept that God needed to reside in some man-made building. Because after Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and was raised triumphantly from the grave, God would come to dwell in the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus provided a way for his people to experience life by pursuing holiness by pursuing distinction. Believers are the temple of God because God dwells in us and with us. He dwells in the hearts of those who truly believe him. And this promise combats the fear that God has left us alone. Maybe that has been a fear of yours. God has left you alone. He no longer hears you. He no longer answers your prayers that is untrue. The truth is that God dwells with us. Second, we are the temple because we are God's people. Quoting from Leviticus 26, Paul writes, I will be their God and they shall be my people. For those of us who trust in Christ, God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And God's promise to make us his people combats the fear that God has forgotten us. Do you ever feel that God has forgotten you? Just as Paul wanted to convince the Corinthian church, he wants to convince you through the written word. Paul has not forgotten, God has not forgotten you. The third reason why we are the temple of God is because we are welcomed into his family. Look at the text At the end of verse 17, end of verse 18, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God's promise to welcome us into his family combats the fear that God only wants certain people who look a certain way, who come from a certain background. God only wants those certain people to be part of his family. No. God is calling people from every single nation, from every socioeconomic class, from every ethnicity, from every language into his family so that he might be glorified as we experience the joy of knowing Christ as Savior. And so, friend, if you are a Christian, remember that you are not alone you have not been forgotten, and you have been welcomed into God's family. You are part of the temple of God. You have a global family and a local family. You can rely on the promises of God. But if you are not a Christian here, so glad that you are here. And 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 applies to you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God is welcoming you into his family. But again, a distinction must still be made. In verse 17, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Basically, pursue holiness. (laughs) Pursue holiness in the context of your relationships. But how do we do this? How should we engage in that pursuit? Paul gives us the answer in chapter 7, verse 1. Although not in our English text, verse 1 begins with the word, Therefore based on everything that Paul just wrote. Therefore, since we have the promises that Paul just communicated, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I think this means that the way we pursue holiness in the context of relationships is by cleansing ourselves From every defilement. According to this text, I I think it gives us a a three step pattern, if you will. First, according to verse 1 in chapter 7, remind yourself of the promises of God, what Paul just communicated. God has not left us alone, He promises to dwell with us. God has not forgotten us, He promises to remember His people. God has not rejected us. He promises to welcome us into his family. So first, remind yourself of the promises of God. Second, if you love Jesus and follow him, remind yourself that you are loved by God. Paul uses this word beloved on purpose. If God loves us, and he does, if he has not forgotten us, and he has not, then in return we should love him. Jesus communicates the same thing in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. But the third thing, and I think the emphasis of this this verse here, the third thing that we must do is turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. Because, you see, the truth is we can never cleanse ourselves from every defilement. It is not possible. Jesus must do this. We cannot cleanse our own souls. Jesus must do this through his blood. And only Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died that sacrificial death and rose triumphantly over the grave, can achieve this. But what we can do is cleanse the temple through repentance and belief. According to Second Chronicles chapter 29, God raised up Hezekiah, who cleansed the temple from idolatry. In that chapter we read, "...the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord. They brought out everything they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron." Now, I'm not recommending pollution in your local water source. These people dump their idols into the rivers, but brothers and sisters, we too must dump our idols into the river, metaphorically speaking. If there is any sin in your heart seeking to keep you from a solid fellowship with the Lord, turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. If there is any unbiblical philosophy, theory, or belief that is seeking to slither its way into the sanctuary of your heart, then you must crush it. Do not open your ears to listening to false teaching. Do not open your heart to the enemy. Do not become yoked to ideas that will lead you away from Christ. Yoke yourself to the Lord Jesus. Now, this text has often been used to counsel Christians not to marry non-Christians, not to date or marry non-Christians, I should say. And Paul is not writing about marriage here, but this surely is a, a correct application. Other texts in the Bible make this claim as well. If you are a Christian, you should that you should date or marry a Christian. We know that dating often leads to marriage, and marriage demands a deep spiritual commitment because marriage is meant to display the gospel. We know this. But this text applies to other relationships as well. Friends, family members, co-workers, our emotions can often become entangled with others in our life so that we become yoked to unbiblical beliefs of another person or the anti-biblical ideologies of this world. Sometimes, even unwittingly, we can turn from the mountain of God to worship, worship the golden calves of theories and social superstitions. I think you know what I mean. How many times have we seen individuals who were once committed to the authentic and historic gospel biblical teaching and they have come to change in the way they feel and the way they think and the way they act because a family member embraced a certain lifestyle or a certain way of living or thinking that did not align with the word of God? Friends, do not be fooled. Not one of us is as strong as we think we are. That's why we need the word of God. That's why we need a solid community of Christians around us. That's why church planting is so important. Because all around the world, there are Christians who do not have this kind of community. And we want to see that repeated all over the world. Okay, that's just a side note. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So Paul concludes this section with the statement bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Our pursuit of holiness is contingent upon how greatly we fear the Lord. To the degree that we understand God as holy and separate and distinct and great and powerful and sovereign over all the universe is the degree to which we will pursue holiness in relationships. Put sin to death and even reach the nations. You see, God designed holiness to function as a means of reaching the nations. God chose Israel to be a light to the nations who were walking in darkness all around them. God called his people to be separate and distinct so that the peoples around Israel would look at Israel and see that the God of Israel was dwelling and working powerfully in their midst. And in response, they would come to him in faith. They would recognize that this was truly the one and only God. And God has always designed his people to be a means for the world to know him. And that has not changed. And so let us be a people who reject the yoke of unbelief and put on the yoke of Christ. And in doing so, he will enable us to light up the darkness with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We remember the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 11, who welcomes all of those who are Heavy burdened. And he says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We pursue holiness and relationships by being yoked to Christ. Jesus walks beside you. He wants to carry your heavy burdens because from the beginning God designed the world to be a place where he would dwell with his people and they would dwell with him as their God. They would recognize him as holy and out of the response of love in their hearts, they would obey him. So let us be that kind of people who look to Jesus, who follow his commands even when they are difficult. God has graciously given us his instructions, his clear expectations regarding holiness. So let me ask you these questions. Do your friends and family members and coworkers recognize that God is dwelling in you and working in your midst through the power of the Holy Spirit? Do they recognize that about college church? I don't know what your, your life looks like. I don't know how you spend your time, how you live your days, but I do know that my testimony and your testimony and the testimony of our church will be distorted if we live like the world and, com- and commit to unbiblical beliefs or practices that will happen. And if we close our hearts to the historic teaching of God's word, then you may find that we've opened our heart to the enemy. God has provided his word as a means of protecting his people. Throughout history, the yoke was used primarily for animals, but unfortunately also for slaves and prisoners. Friend, don't become a prisoner to someone who will lead you away from Christ. Instead, lead them away from the evil one who wants to destroy their soul. If you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you are no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free. So embrace the freedom that you have in Christ and tell others about this freedom as well. This is what Pastor Moody has been preaching about. We have been sent on mission. And remember, we have the Holy Spirit who will help us and we look forward in faith to the future as recorded by the Apostle John in Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And in that day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. The relationship between God and humankind will be restored and we will rejoice at this reconciliation to the father through the lord jesus and the power of the spirit and in that day what paul mentions here in chapter 7 verse 1 will come to an end bringing holiness to completion in the fear of god in that day we will experience holiness that has been brought to completion in the fear of God. So, the, so to the degree that we are able, let us look to God as our holy creator. Let us look to God as the holy provider and let us respond to him in love by pursuing holiness in relationships. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and we ask that you would help our people here to remember everything that you want to communicate and nothing that I have failed to communicate or communicated poorly. Lord, I pray that your people here would be strengthened, would be emboldened, would be reminded that they have been set aside and made distinct for a purpose, to be a light in this community and to the nations. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.